Rusty Quill presents. That's a common misconception, actually. I leaned into it because it made the interviews interesting, but the truth is that Treading on a False Memory isn't the first work of fiction I ever wrote. I didn't even write Treading on a False Memory. It fell from the sky while I was out gardening in the backyard and hit me on the head. I don't know where it came from. I was looking down, so I didn't see it fall. But there wasn't anywhere else it could have come from. It's not like it hit me and then I rushed off to my uncle to get it published, either. These must be someone else's words, I thought. The more I read them, the more I wanted to find this person, but the name on the cover was Raphael Muslani. As far as the world was concerned, I wrote the book. It was never my intention to kickstart my literary career or anything like that. That was all a happy accident. I got it published exactly as it was given to me, in hopes that the actual author would see it and find me. And because I thought the novel was beautiful and needed to be seen by the world. That's the story. Raphael Muslani is a nice man. I don't think I was surprised about that. I don't like his novels much, gifted to him from the heavens or otherwise, but there's no correlation between quality of an author and their geniality. There might be an inverse correlation. He told this story to me as he pulled out a spare copy of Treading on a False Memory and signed it for me. Eliza, I'm sure you'll find what you're looking for. I hope this novel helps, even if you've already read it once. Raph, it said. Raphael's house smelled strongly of cedar and old books. It was a pleasant smell, even if overbearing. The overbearing nature of the smell served its own aesthetic purpose. It signified old and bookish in a way that it wouldn't if it was just a faint smell drifting through the house. The lights were low and yellow, light bulbs imitating candlelight. It was all deliberately constructed. Raphael Muslani clearly wanted to make the library feel cozy and bookish, despite his immense wealth giving him the resources to make a library of any size and feel that he desired. I don't blame him for his choices. This was the platonic form of library in my mind's eye as well. Your cat got loose and attacked me, I said. Not entirely accurate. Lucy is on the longest leash in the world, you see. I had it made especially for her. So she was on a leash the whole time, even if it was so long that she could go wherever she wanted to go, he said. I knew this. I explained as much in this very diary. I don't know why I characterized it in the way that I did. I suppose that the way I described it was how it felt. Regardless, I am so sorry that she came after you like that. She is extremely protective of me, you know. I think it's because I treat her like a queen. She is fiercely loyal to me and feels threatened when there are people she doesn't know around. She has to protect her meal ticket, after all, he said and winked. Lucy was fast asleep in her cat bed, the largest cat bed in the world, I assume, a heaving mass of white and orange. Lucy led you here, right? Maybe that's not what it looked like, but that's what happened. You're not the first person to show up on my doorstep in the middle of a stormy night to tell me that my cat led them to my house. Some of them had scratch marks on them. You were lucky. I've always wondered why I wanted the world's largest cat. 
After I earned the means to make it happen, I became obsessed with the idea. I don't even like cats. I think it was so that she would lead people like you to my doorstep. There's something a little backwards in that construction, though. How could I know that Lucy would lead people to my door? That's not something that cats normally do, after all. I would have to perceive the future in order to adequately want what I wanted then. Can you see the future? I asked. I don't know, he sighed. I feel as though there is an end state to all of this, and everything is set in motion to achieve that end state, even if cause and effect have to reverse sometimes for it to happen. Does that count as seeing the future? He asked. Not traditionally, I said. I started a book about someone who could see in the future in the traditional way of thinking about it. It did never get a name. I didn't get far into writing it before I hit a brick wall. It was about a man who could see into the future, however far and with whatever granularity he wanted. The premise fell apart almost instantly. I'm sure you can hazard a guess as to why, he said. He could just avoid all of his problems, no conflict, I said. Oh, wow, no, I, I never thought of that, he said and chuckled. That's a different idea of how the future works, I think. No, he couldn't avoid any of his problems. That was the problem, actually. He could see everything, but if he could see everything, then that means that he would know what was going to happen to him with no way to prevent it. If he could prevent anything that happened to him, it wouldn't be him seeing into the future. It would be more like him seeing into all possible futures except the one that was in front of him. So, he could see all of the bad things that happened to him and to everyone else. And he was a character in a sci-fi novel written by me no less. So some extremely bad things were going to happen to him. Can you imagine getting into a shootout and knowing that you're going to get shot and endure immense pain and there is nothing that you can do about it? It was all too bleak and depressing by the time I got done outlining it. It bummed me out. It made me feel like I had no control. You wouldn't want to buy it in an airport bookstore, which is a huge problem for me. I never even sent any pages to my editor. I just let it die. I think I might have burned the pages I did write in the fireplace. I still write with pen and pad. It prevents me from being too frivolous. That does sound bleak, I said. Not bad, but I would probably feel bad after reading it. So, what's your story? He asked me. I wasn't sure what to make of this question. I don't think I have a story. What does that mean for me? I asked. What I mean is, surely there is some commonality to the events in your life that you can weave into a narrative. What is that narrative, and what does it say? Well, I thought about your books, got attacked by your cat, followed it to your house, and now I'm in your house with you having this conversation, I said. So, it's about identity, right? How identity intersects with perception? If you have a character in a novel, the reader can only know what they have been told about the character. If we are reading along and the story never brings up what happens before the story, then history doesn't exist. There is no Eliza Schultz until there is a stormy night and the largest cat in the world to antagonize her. You can make assumptions about her. She is well-read, she is inquisitive, but that's about it. It is a grand assumption that readers make when they imagine a life for Eliza Schultz, before that moment where she started existing. It is a kindness that we extend to fictional characters and strangers. The neologism for it is Sonder, the awareness that other people have as equally a full existence as you do. Except fictional characters don't have that existence. They have the existence that is in the text and nothing else. The need to understand the Sonder of a fictional character comes from a misplaced compassion, confusing words for people. I think it highlights what's good about the human condition, but in the end it is still a lie. 
That's all very interesting, I said, and I don't mean to be rude, but I know with exactitude what happens in all of your books. You have just exhibited an awareness that I don't find particularly present in your books. I don't think that I missed it. I think I have as perfect a reading of your novels as is possible. I am the perfect reader of Raphael Muslani. So why isn't that in there? Upon hearing this, Raphael Muslani laughed so hard that it scared me. I sat there in the awkward liminal space between my question and why he found it so funny. It wasn't a cruel laugh, but it felt cruel because I was not in on the joke. I didn't pretend to laugh along. I stayed stone-faced, waiting for him to stop and answer. My expression didn't help communicate my confusion, though, because Raphael was laughing so hard that his eyes were forced shut. It was that funny to him. I was embarrassed. Why in the world would I do that? He finally said, choked through as his laughter subsided. Awareness? Eliza, awareness is for those that are aware. My stories are about characters, they aren't about us. If you did personify them like I have just described, if you attributed a rich inner life to each of them, how horrible must you be to put that awareness on them? They aren't alive, and they can't die. If they could see that their existence was predicated on something as arbitrary as page length, and something as inescapable as the printed word by a genre fiction author, they would be mortified. Well, I say they would be mortified, but in reality, they would be whatever I told them to be. That's even more horrifying. The idea that I would prevent them from feeling the deserved abject horror that comes with seeing their whole lives laid out as a narrative in an airport novel. I write books that sell well, it's true, but I don't have to, not anymore. I have enough money that I can afford for a book to flop. I have enough influence that I can write whatever I want and get it published. But I don't write horror. I don't care for it much. Life is quite vexing on its own. And narrative awareness is horror on its own. He looked satisfied with his answer. And the story about Eliza Schultz showing up on your doorstep on a stormy night? How do you feel about that? I asked. I feel however I feel with an inability to feel any other way. What else am I supposed to do? turn to the camera and wink. It's all pretense. It is best not to concern oneself with it. I cannot be bothered to concern myself, he said. Personally, I felt concerned. I felt adrift, unmoored from history or personhood. I felt vulnerable, as if I were at the whims of both an uncaring world and an eldritch being who shaped my life based on a foreign set of beliefs and desires that I could not understand nor predict. I felt however I felt without an ability to feel any other way, I felt like the intersection between identity and perception. Raphael Muslani looked on patiently as I processed this. Lucy, now awake, casually strode over to where I was sitting and began purring and rubbing against my legs. She came up to my knees, which made the quotidian feeling of a cat's affection feel alien. I cautiously put my hand down to her eye level, and she rubbed her head against it. It felt comforting. I was still cold from being outside for so long. Would you look at that? Raphael said. I knew she would like you. She just needed me to assure her that you were not a threat. I'm glad you came to my house tonight, Eliza. I think that it will make all of the difference. At the very least, the next time you come across Lucy, she will see you as a friend rather than a foe. She is a good friend to have. She's loyal, strong, protective, and as cute as a button on top of that. Plus, you never know when you might see her out in the world on the world's longest leash. Maybe she'll show up in the third act, during the moment in which it feels like you've been abandoned and all hope is lost. That's a good time for an antagonistic character from the first act who gets redeemed to show up. An invisible red thread between you and her that gets tugged on at the last moment. I don't know that any of that will happen, I said. 
Good. It would be a travesty if you knew, he said. I thanked him for the company and the conversation and told him that I must be on my way. He apologized for Lucy's behavior and promised that it wouldn't happen again, and I accepted his apology and wholeheartedly believed him. Lucy weaved between my legs as I walked back to the front door. It was frustrating but charming. I appreciated her newfound affection for me, as if I had passed some sort of grand test. As I turned to say my goodbye for the evening, standing on the opposite side of the threshold from him, Raphael grabbed a book that was on the bookshelf right beside the door. The cover was blank, a placeholder. Here. This one is done, but it isn't out yet. You don't know what happens in it yet. Pretty exciting, right? He said. I took the book, thanked him, and was on my way. I could hear the door shut behind me. The sun was coming up in front of me. The rain had abated. There was a new Raphael Muslani novel. I began to walk. <laughs> 